Welcome to Breaking Through. I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Today's episode is part of a special series, Pioneered at CHOP. Many of the doctors and scientists at CHOP are considered pioneers in their fields. Their discoveries and insights are transforming children's lives and changing the world. In Pioneered at CHOP, you'll get a glimpse inside their world and hear the stories behind their groundbreaking work. On this episode, you'll hear from one of my heroes, Dr. Katherine High. Dr. High is a world-renowned hematologist and scientist. She was director of CHOP's Raymond G. Perlman Center for Cellular and Molecular Therapeutics for close to a decade. She has spent much of her career focused on achieving a goal few believed was possible, developing gene therapies and getting them to patients. After many years of work, a gene therapy Dr. High and her team developed was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2017. This therapy, called Luxturna, was an incredible breakthrough. It restores vision in patients with a rare form of congenital blindness, and it was the first gene therapy for a genetic disease to receive FDA approval. In 2013, CHOP helped create the gene therapy company Spark Therapeutics, to get life-changing therapies like Luxterna to patients faster. Dr. High held several leadership positions at Spark, including president, chief scientific officer, and head of research and development. She is currently president of therapeutics at the gene therapy company AskBio. In early 2020, before the COVID-19 pandemic, I had the opportunity to speak to Dr. High about her incredible career. I'm thrilled to share that conversation with you today. So Dr. High, there's a lot of excitement about gene therapy. It's an incredibly fast-growing field, but for many years, there weren't a lot of people investing in gene therapy. Can you tell us a little bit more about why that was the case? Well, Madeline, you're right. And gene therapy, as I always like to tell people, had, had a quiet childhood and a difficult adolescence. So clinical gene therapy really began in 1990, when a group at the U.S. National Institutes of Health, the NIH, carried out the very first gene therapy trial for a rare form of inherited immunodeficiency disorder. And there followed through the next decade a number of trials for diseases like cystic fibrosis, for which at that point there was no treatment. And most of those early trials of gene therapy through that first decade appeared to be safe, but did not have very convincing evidence of efficacy. And at the end of that first decade, there were several high-profile adverse events. And the consequence of that was that there was a general broad retrenchment, and most investors of all types, from pharmaceutical companies to biotech companies to Wall Street, decided that gene therapy was not really ready for prime time and that it didn't make sense to continue to invest in it, that there were just too many unsolved problems to really use it safely. And then through that second decade of clinical gene therapy, most gene therapy work took place in academic medical centers, and CHOP was one of those. And through that decade, Physicians and scientists continued to solve the kinds of problems that had hampered the ability to do real drug development in the gene therapy space. 
And then toward the end of that second decade, we began to see publications of really convincing efficacy using gene therapy approaches. And that really ushered in a new era for gene therapy. So in 2012, the very first gene therapy product was approved in Europe. It never gained approval in the United States, but it did show that it was possible to actually bring an investigational agent all the way through the drug development process to approval. It was a disease that affects very few people, but it did gain approval. Famously, in the five years that it was approved, it sold exactly one dose. Wow, that's unbelievable. (laughs) But it heralded the onset of a new era for gene therapy in which there was a lot more investment by a wide range of interested stakeholders. But I have to say it was very important that in that second decade of gene therapy, when things looked very bleak, Children's Hospital was one of those academic medical centers that chose to invest in gene therapy and really allowed us at the Center for Cellular and Molecular Therapeutics to have the wherewithal to solve a number of problems that could make it possible to bring gene therapy to bear on diseases that had never had treatment. And you really had that perseverance and you just didn't let what was happening around you stop you and you just kept your head down and kept working on it? Is that well, how you I would describe think, it? I think that what some people would say is that to a fault, I tend to focus on what I'm doing and not be conscious of the things that are going on around me. And, and I do have to say that these high-profile adverse events that occurred at the end of the first decade of clinical gene therapy did not in any way deter me because I thought that our own work, and we were already in clinical investigation then, was not uncovering any problems that could not be solved. And so that was really what, in the early 2000s, drove me to approach the leadership of Children's Hospital and say, can you help us with the work that we're doing? Because all the biotech companies are going away. They had been making our clinical-grade vector. We can't do that anymore. Can we set those things up here at Children's Hospital? And as you know, fortunately, the resources were found, and we established the center And we were able to recruit people from a number of the companies on the West Coast that had folded in the absence of investor interest and bring those people here to Philadelphia. All we had to do was convince them that living in Philadelphia is a lot like living in San Francisco. (laughs) And and we were were able to do that. Later, I realized, actually, it's a very good filter because all the people we recruited were the people who cared way more about the work than they did about where they lived. And those people came here to Philadelphia, and we established a center that was really a leading center in gene therapies, particularly in clinical gene therapy. Tell me a little bit about the team. You said you recruited people from around the country, which is terrific. The genesis of the work that led to Luxterna was done in the CHOP Department of Ophthalmology by Jean Bennett, who is a member of the faculty, and she had had a longstanding interest in using gene therapy to cure inherited forms of blindness. And she had demonstrated in a dog model of a disease, it's a naturally occurring dog model, of a disease that affects children who are born with a lack of light sensitivity. So they have a lot of trouble seeing in dim light, 
But eventually, over time, their vision grows worse and worse, and most of them progress to complete blindness. And she had shown if she could introduce this vector into the subretinal space, so uh, you, you take a needle and go back into the back of the eye and inject a fluid containing our vector, AAV, that encodes the gene that's defective in these dogs, that it would restore their vision. So it didn't just arrest it where it was, it actually restored it. And I had always thought that those were really exciting results. And when I was working with a biotech company on the West Coast in the 1990s, I kept telling them, you should try to do this disease. And they said, well, no, because it doesn't affect enough patients. We want to do something with more patients. And I said, yeah, but it's going to work. <laughs> but anyway, when we were all here at CHOP and we could actually make the decisions on what to work on, I approached Jean and asked her if she would work with us to do a trial here at the Children's Hospital for this rare form of congenital blindness. And so in 2005, we started working together to try to get this vector ready to put into a trial that would include both adults and children with this serious form of blindness. And in 2007, we were ready to go. So the first patient in the phase one, two clinical trial was from Italy. And she was in her mid-20s, but she really couldn't see much. And after she had the surgery here at CHOP, she went back home to Italy. And after about three weeks, her ophthalmologist in Italy said that she received a very surprising phone call that the patient had awakened and lay in bed and looked around and realized that for the first time she was actually seeing the furniture. She was accustomed to maneuver around the apartment by knowing where everything was and that for the first time she'd actually see the furniture and so she very excitedly ran to the phone and called the ophthalmologist who was taking care of her in Italy. <laughs> that was a story that was repeated over and over again in the trial that initially people are post-op and there's some swelling and there's a patch on and and then slowly, slowly, and, and more rapidly sometimes when the patients are younger, they, so teenagers would typically say things like, now I can see the numbers on my cell phone. <laughs> but, you know, these kinds of stories are, were repeated over and over in the course of the clinical trial. So take us back to the lab, sort of the day that you conceived of the idea of actually creating a company, Spark Therapeutics, based on your innovations. We had actually generated a number of positive results in our unit at the Children's Hospital. We had published some high-profile papers, both about blindness and about hemophilia. And a number of investors had begun to make cold calls into my office. And I was surprised about that, and I didn't really know how to address those. At the same time, the hospital had formed a subcommittee of the board to look at options for how we could get the work that we were doing out to patients. How could these discoveries actually eventually be commercialized? And we were receiving many inbound requests from large biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies to learn more about what we were doing. And it was really hard for me to 
work my way through all of that. Uh, and of course, you know, I, I was utilizing various resources of the hospital to try to take these inquiries in. But in 2011, a young entrepreneur came to my office and he was doing a consulting job for the then CEO of the hospital. And he had been asked to talk to as many as 100 different professors at CHOP and determine whether there were other important ideas going on in the hospital that could be commercialized that the hospital wasn't aware of. So he spent three months going around talking to everybody, and I was the last one because I was always busy and it was hard to get on my schedule. And uh, so he came into my office and he sat down, and as soon as he started talking, I, I began thinking to myself, okay, this person could actually be answering all these calls from investors. He could be talking to these <laughs> pharmaceutical companies. He could be doing all those things, and I could keep doing my work. Uh, <laughs> so it was practical, right? <laughs> so, so, so we had a 45-minute appointment that ended up lasting for something like four hours. And so that person, of course, was Jeff Morazzo, who eventually became the CEO of Spark Therapeutics. That's an incredible story as well. So I like to ask all of my guests to share a breakthrough moment that they've had. And can you share your, your breakthrough moment with me? Well, I... I have had many breakthrough moments, and some of those have happened as, as an adult and as a parent, and some of them have happened when I was still a young person. But I'll talk about one of those, and that is when I was growing up, I was one of three daughters, the oldest of three daughters. And my father was very hopeful that one of his children would go into science and really into engineering. And his dearest and most cherished hope was that one of his children would become an aeronautical engineer and, and go to MIT. He was a fairly astute individual, and I think that he realized, uh, based on the interests of his three daughters, that I was likely to be the only one that he could work on to try to convince to go into aeronautical engineering. And so I had many opportunities in science when I was growing up, but... I was really much more drawn to chemistry than to aeronautical engineering. And I, I think he thought, well, he could work with that, right? But when I was a senior in high school, I did apply to both Harvard and MIT. And honestly, I wanted to go to Harvard, but I, I didn't tell my dad that because I didn't want to disappoint him. And I thought, well, maybe the admissions office would make the decision for me. So I didn't have to have that discussion. But, but then in the end, I was very fortunate and was admitted to both of those institutions and so I had to have a difficult discussion with my dad. And one of the things he said to me was, well, the biggest problem in your life is whether to go to Harvard or MIT. I don't feel sorry for you. And I knew that after many conversations, that was his way of saying, you should do what you want to do. It's your life. And so I went to Harvard and majored in chemistry. Then I went to medical school. <laughs> but the reason that's an important story for me was that then I grew up and I became a parent and I had three children. My oldest daughter is a member of the faculty at Penn. She's a dermatologist. This was the child I expected to have. But my middle child, my younger daughter, from a very young age wanted to be an actor. And I couldn't think of anything reassuring about a career in acting. And I knew that there was a lot of job insecurity and and it could be a very difficult path. So I did not think it was a good idea. But then 
I remembered back to my own dad, who very much had something laid out for me, but eventually relented and decided that I should do what I wanted to do. And that was an important guiding lesson for me when I thought about it in relation to my daughter. So she did go on to become an actor, and she's been very successful. So I think it's important to do what's your passion. Well, that's not just a breakthrough moment. It's really great advice for any parent. And it's really good that you uh, took your dad's wisdom and, and passed it on down the line. And I'm glad he let you go to Harvard and go to medical <laughs> school and become a scientist and create the first gene therapy uh, approved by the FDA in the United States. We were so fortunate to have you here for such a big part of your career. And the work that you've done has created an amazing foundation here at Children's Hospital for our future breakthroughs. So it's such a pleasure to talk with you. That's all the time we have today. I'm Dr. Katherine High. Thank you so much for joining me. To find out how you can be part of tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, please visit chop.edu giving. To learn more about how our teams are transforming the future of healthcare, please visit innovation.chop.edu. At CHOP, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell. Thank you for listening.